So I have a birthday coming up. At what age do you stop remembering how old you are? The question should be, what age do you want to stop remembering how old you are? <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you're born in a year that's like doesn't end in a zero or five, you know, I feel like it's it's obviously you got to do a little math at some point. So like my kids will be like, you know, hey, how old are you going to be? And I'm like, uh, let me think here for a second. And they're like, how do you not know how old you are? You know, I'm like, I don't know. It just kind of happens at some point. And not as that's bad enough, my wife texted me and asked how old I was going to be. So like, she doesn't know either. Maybe you could do what we do now when we do like market research work. We could just create age bands. You could say, I'm between the age 35 to 49. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 274. Over on that side of the microphone is Chris Boyer, and I am Reed Smith. Yeah, Reed, I'm trying to calculate what age demographic I got to check the box for now. I'm in the definitely the over 50 age. You start seeing the memes where it's like, today we're just as far from 1990 as 1990 was from 19, you know, one of those things. And, and you're like, wait a minute, or it's always like the back to the future thing. And I'm like, I, th- I feel like we just change this stuff constantly. We're just making up memes. Well, welcome to the show. Welcome to Touchpoint. We certainly appreciate you tuning in. If this is a return visit, welcome back. If you're new, uh, welcome. I want to give a quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is where you can find out more about this show, the episode, Chris, myself, other shows, other show hosts, other topics, all that kind of fun stuff housed at the website touchpoint.health. While you're there, you'll notice up at the top navigation, something called the TPS report. If you click on that, all it's going to do is ask you for an email address, drop that in, and you will start receiving a weekly email on Monday mornings with five articles to start your week. That's it. That's all we plan to use it for. We'd love to have you connect with us there. We'd love to shoot you some resources that might be uh, of reading interest every Monday morning. And so we'll take a pause while you go do that and be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So Reed, today we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, which is consumerism in healthcare. And we're going to take a different kind of tack to it. We're going to talk a little bit about how consumer experience, while it's shifting to be more self-service and choice-oriented, are we sometimes going too far? I think we have to ask ourselves that question every so often. What do you think? Uh, Yes, too many choices. Too many choices. Yeah, as they say, right, too many choices are no choices, right? That's right. Sometimes you just got to be the parent and tell them what they're (laughs) eating for dinner. Well, it actually makes sense. And that's actually a tenet of consumer experience and user experience design is sometimes you do have to give them the opportunity to make the next best choice, right? We've talked about this before. Sure. In fact, when we think about healthcare consumerism, Reed, think about all the different ways that we're, we're kind of leaning in on this concept of there's a lot of self-service and we want to provide more and more information to the consumers so they can make better choices. From my thought, 
around that is there's a fine line as far as we can go. And then where, how do we back off of that line? What What is too much? It's an interesting question. And if you think about just just purely, you know, for those of us in the marketing field, you think about like why we even build landing pages. Well, because you, you don't necessarily want to send them to the website and then them get lost and not do the thing that you wanted them to do. So this is a little bit of that, you know, conceptually that that idea of, hey, strip away all the noise and just give them, you know, kind of that next best action. You know, now it's not quite that simple. That's kind of conceptually what we're talking about here is. So sometimes they don't know what that is. You know, sometimes though, on the flip side, as we're going through landing page design, occasionally we'll make this a secondary call to action. Oh, we'll do a third call to action. And I'm like, wait a second. The ideal landing page should only have one call to action on it. Yeah. Again, this whole concept of how, how far is too far. And so let's, let's double down on that thought today and let's jump into the concept of, is there too much choice in consumerism? And why don't we start first, read with an article that we found from Nielsen IQ. Sounds smart. The Nielsen folks, the consumer experience folks, right, that we, we all know very well, they actually recently published an article called, Do I Need This? Necessity Will Be the Strongest Consumer Force of 2022. That's really interesting. I think my wife has had that for some years now. People continually come to our house and want to know where our stuff is. Uh, every time we have a garage sale, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what we're selling because we just don't have much, you know. So <laughs> she has not struggled with the "Do I need this?" question. Her default is no. <laughs> but to to that point, though, that's you know that's kind of the consumer, right? And that's that's the mindset. They talking here about you know this pandemic that's gone on for some time now. We're even starting to see numbers go back up in some yeah. of our markets, which is unfortunate. But you know, the consumer prioritization of well-being, not sure around pricing. You're talking about like gas prices and lumber and like all, all the stuff that's changed, right? And, and supply chain related stuff, product availability that are helping and hurting the, the you know, global well-being. And to some extent, I think back to the pandemic, you know, kind of the, the initial, the, the, the heart of it, right? Those first six months maybe or something, kind of the summer of 2020 maybe. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a lot about that that I'm, I'm relatively thankful for. And I, and I know a lot of people can't say that and, and I, that's not lost on me, but it, it did, you know, kind of make me reevaluate, take stock, look at my family, the t- how I'm spending my time. And I think a lot of people probably went through that process, right? So there's some good that's, that's come out of that, those decision-making processes and things like that. But, but obviously it's well-documented. It, it has not been great for the consumer in a lot of ways. No, no. In fact, they kind of indicate, they, they drew this interesting parallel, right? They say, just as people are quitting their jobs in the great resignation, they said that there's this great shopping cart edit going on. They actually called it the great grocery edit, but I'm kind of extending it to a shopping cart because that kind of aligns to what we're doing here. Yeah. Where, Consumers are intentionally looking in their online baskets. They're rewriting their grocery lists. They're quitting brands altogether for options that better meet the necessities of their health, well-being, and value, as well as availability, right? But as you think about this, this is really getting to the point of our consumers now faced with all these choices starting to say, well, wait, this is too many choices. I really just need this particular thing. And in healthcare, that particular thing is, is what type of appointment is the most important for me right now? Right. Well, this this article digs into a hierarchy that breaks down health, wellness, well-beings, you know, really into to kind of five key areas of priority. This would be an interesting way to kind of set this up a little bit. I'll be kind of curious, you know, uh, what people think about this. Would love to hear from folks, certainly, but just kind of even as you, you know, have some self-reflection. Well, let's talk about the first one. It's uh, the, these of these five hierarchies. The first one is the protective needs. Those are things that are focused on urgent desires for safety, protection, immediate threats. So some of the questions like the do I need this questions are, do I need this to preserve my health and safety amid ongoing risks? Or do I need this to feel physically, financially, or environmentally safe? These are some of those initial questions. So think about feeling an illness coming on. Do I need to go to the urgent care to determine if this is COVID or just a flu? These are kinds of the protective needs of questions. Next on the list is preservation needs. Focus on the broader spectrum of self-care. 
uh, improving the current physical or emotional well-being and connection. You do see, I think, and I think we saw the spike initially with things like Peloton, right? And some of these home workout scenarios, right? And I think that's where a lot of that's coming from. It's just the people. And we saw it historically at the beginning of every year when people go and join gyms, I guess, but just a focus on, you know, what am I doing? You know, the cook at meal, cook at home, you know, kits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. A lot of those questions are around, do I need this to prioritize my time or make things easier or faster? Convenience kind of falls into this a little bit. Uh, another question in this category too is like, do I need this if the price keeps going up? If it gets more and more expensive, do I really need this? That's the preservation. The next is aspirational needs. Those are focused on preventative care, proactive actions to achieve and maintain specific health goals or even help to avoid ailments in the long term. So think about like, do I need this to achieve my long-term health goals? Do I need to continue to go to the gym, even though it costs me a lot of money and might put me at risk? Or is this something I need for my long-term health goals or can I achieve it a different way? That's kind of the trade-offs that they have at this level. Fourth on the list, uh, evolving needs. So focused on uh, kind of innovative care solutions. Uh, what, you know, what are the, you know, seeking out kind of what are the latest alternatives or developments to continue and meet those health and wellness goals. So, you know, as it relates to kind of that, do I need this uh, idea? Do I need it? Is, is price become harder to find? It makes me think of, you know, things I do kind of non-work related, you know, the hobby related stuff like woodworking and all that, you know, stuff starts getting really expensive and it's like, uh, do I need this, you know, kind of a deal. And so I think, you know, that mindset as it relates to health and wellness, um, is interesting. Yeah. Like, do I really need a, a, a PS5? I really want one, but do I need right. one? <laughs> I can't find yeah, it. Anyway, probably. <laughs> okay. The last hierarchy in this concept is altruistic. And by altruistic, that really means focused on selfless care and improving the world around us, obviously. Things that are more bigger, advocating for environmental, ethical, humanitarian, and even philanthropic causes. Do I need this to feel like I'm helping the world around me? Or do I need this to help the causes that I care about? As we go down this list here, Reed, the closer we get to the bottom, those are the ones that become more fluid, so to speak, in this concept, right? It's like the hierarchy of needs. Protective is the things you absolutely need. But when you get to this level, this is kind of like nice to haves, really nice to haves. This is probably at the five, you know, I'm kind of looking, I'm just scanning back through the list here, you know, protective, you know, is maybe, uh, well, maybe preservation as well. But the protective piece I know is, is where my head probably goes first. You know, what, what are those urgent, you know, kind of right now needs, you know, around, uh, any sort of immediate threat, I think it's as they put it. And then maybe the aspirational piece. A few of these other ones, even evolving needs, are probably not as top of mind, right? I mean, it's just, you know, we're, we're so center focused, you know, kind of on our lives and families and kind of what's going on. I, I think it will be kind of interesting to see, you know, how this evolves over the next, uh, really as we, you know, kind of hopefully pull out of this pandemic, see kind of what happens. Yeah, I think also... When we look at different communities, some of our more at risk communities, communities that we need that that we could serve much better than we currently are, are kind of operating at the higher level, the protective preservation needs. Whereas some of those more affluent, well off, are making decisions around altruistic, aspirational, evolving kind of needs. It becomes very interesting in this whole uh, concept of consumer experience, like. How do we solve our customers the right way by appealing to the need that they are actually looking for? So, Reed, why don't we do this? Let's take a break here. And then when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about choice and how offering too much choice could either be a good or a bad thing in the overall consumer experience. We'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, 
Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right. Do you want chocolate chip, oatmeal raisin, maybe sugar cookies? You know. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, is, is having a broad uh, menu, if you will, of choices always a good thing? Let's jump in. This is a, uh, next article is from thedecisionlab.com. Why do we have a harder time choosing when we have more options? Decision Lab is a behavioral design firm, and they get into this concept of choice overload, which is also has other names. So I, I like some of these other names here. Overchoice, choice paralysis, or the paradox of choice. This really describes how people can sometimes get overwhelmed when they're presented with a large number of options to choose from. As a side note, I'm pretty sure I saw Paradox of Choice open for Matchbox 20 in like 97. (laughs) Yeah, they were a good band. (laughs) They they had just that one hit. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you do kind of get overloaded, right? And and we tend to think they to call it out in here that like you know more is better, more choice always a good thing. Uh, not necessarily. Research has shown that we you know have a harder time choosing from a larger array of options. We do. We certainly do, and it can delay us in making decisions, even important ones. Because we're considering too many of the options and it's taxing us and our cognitive systems. I like the concept of when we talk about good user experience, we have to talk about not taxing their cognitive systems and helping them make better decisions. They say here that near infinite choices in almost everything can make us feel constantly preoccupied with decisions that we need to make or ruminating over choices that we might regret. Have you ever like woken up in the middle of the night or thought about, you know, after you walk out of the store, did I actually pick the right thing? This is that whole concept of choice overload that they're talking about or over choice. And it can actually lead people to become more depressed and anxious. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's worrisome. Right, I guess is the point. That's where the depression and anxiety potentially comes in. Uh, there's regret, I think it's said in there, and some different things like that. They go on to say up until very recently in human history, most people's paths in life were more or less predetermined. You know, few individuals had much say in what job they would have as an adult, or whether or not they would get married, or whether or not they would have children. And that's true, right? I mean, if you think about the, the way the education system is built, you know, it was built to, to put people in the, you know, those kind of production-style roles. But if you were born into a family that were farmers, you know, that's probably what you were going to do. And because people weren't as mobile as they are now, you probably were going to marry somebody in that town, and, you know, so forth and so on. So it, it's it's interesting to kind of think about it in, in that context that now, you know, technology is aiding in, you know, your ability to see the world, meet other people, uh, and even, uh, Chris, in our cases, like, you know, create your own job. You know, <laughs> right, it. right. Um, they say in here, in a harsh and unforgiving environment, being choosy, about what kind of foods you would eat or how you dressed could result in winding up dead. Now that seems a little heavy handed. (laughs) Yes. Gracious. But, but I mean, that's true, right? I mean, again, if you think about it way back, even when I was a kid, I mean, there there weren't any choices in food. I mean, I, I just ate what we had for dinner at night. Like you didn't go out to eat all the time. There wasn't a Chick-fil-A. I wasn't ordering from an app and just you know, picking up stuff on the way home. That's just not how it worked. I mean, obviously once I got into high school, certainly you get a car, you start driving, there's McDonald's, you know, et cetera. There's more choices. Yeah. There's more choices. And now we're looking back at all the choices that we have. And we live in a Western world, Reed, where we've evolved culturally to prize this whole concept of choice, freedom, autonomy, that really is really closely aligns to the fact that choice equals more freedom and more freedom is always unambiguously a good thing. But the problem is this whole concept of choice overload contradicts this idea. It's very hard for us 
as humans to make choices, particularly around decisions where we're not really clear if the choices we're making are the right ones. So they talk about, you know, why, why is this happening? You know, what, what is it, you know? And so, yeah, so the four, the four things, first one is that we uh, have limited cognitive resources. So choice overload gets its name from the paralyzing effect it has on our decision-making process. Uh, The more variety there is, they say, the harder it becomes for us to choose. Not only does it make the experience feel more draining, but it also makes us more likely to choose nothing or putting off making a decision. You know, I can can probably relate with that, right? If it's not simple and kind of to the point, it's like, okay, I'll do this another time. So, Reed, would it be fair for me to say that you have limited cognitive resources? Yes. <laughs> That's, I want to drop that in my next meeting. <laughs> yeah. Seems to me you have limited cognitive resources. Let me help answer the question for you. But no, it does make sense. And the other thing here, the second point they say here is the more choices we have, the higher our expectations. This is another concept, a concept called expectation disconfirmation. That's a big driver of choice overload. The more options we have to choose from, the more confident we feel that somewhere in the bunch, we're going to be able to choose the exactly the right one. And then our expectations get higher. And then guess what happens? We get more disappointed in the choice we make. We second guess our choices. I may try to work that in to something. Expectation disconfirmation. <laughs> Third on the list, uh, it says some of us are maximizers and that maximizers are people who feel compelled to find the very best option available to them. Again, I can probably kind of relate to this. Uh, maximizers need to compare all their choices, evaluate alternatives, probably you know a host of attributes are taken into account before they feel ready to make a decision. While others are, uh, you know, folks are just looking for something that meets the basic requirement. You know, it's got, that's that whole, like, don't let uh, perfection be the enemy of, of good, you know, kind of a scenario. I think that I can find myself really in both of those categories. There are things in my life that it's like, look, I, it's not important to me that we have the best option here. Let's just get the one that works and, and move on. There's other things, you know, that like you know, you're buying a car, for example, or something like that, or something maybe just of personal interest that you, you know, you're you're looking and doing research and watching YouTube videos and all these things to make sure that your the choice you're making is the right one. I'm thinking about people that go to the online find a doctor and they choose all the different ways that you could filter your results and then they get zero results and then they start unclicking things to Mm -hmm. see like, okay, maybe this one's not as important. And then suddenly you get five, right? Or 10 or whatever. Those are those maximizers. Those are those people. The last point as to why this too much choice can be a bad thing is that sometimes we don't exactly know what we're looking for. That's called preference uncertainty. We don't know what qualities we want in our final choice. So if we don't have enough knowledge about what we're trying to choose, it becomes more overwhelming when we're faced with a huge assortment of choices. Fascinating to think about. So I think the point here, Reed, is how much choice is too much choice? I don't know that there's a standard answer there. That's hard. And when we get into things like design, when we think about not only find a doctor, website design, when we think about uh, campaigns and all the, the, the terms that were out there, I know that there's this, there's this habit of all of us trying to struggle with, do we do enough or do we lay out, do we give enough options to the consumer, that self-actualized consumer that we always talk about? I'm just not sure we're ever going to get there. Is this the best guess scenario? I think there is something to take into account when you're thinking about, uh, you know, how many options. I think that's a good kind of proof point as you're beta testing and rolling things out of like, hey, give me some feedback here. Does this seem pretty straightforward? Is it clear what we're wanting the you know consumer to do? You know that that kind of thing, right? This kind of leads naturally to a conversation I had recently with Steve Liebforth, who's with Castle Connolly. We know Steve. He's been on the show a couple times before. Yep. Uh, good friend of the show. He's been around in the industry for a while. He and I sat down and we talked a little bit about a study that Castle Connolly recently did about consumerism in healthcare. And lo and behold, they found out that nearly half of the people that they surveyed have the same goal in mind, which is they're actively seeking out new doctors. 
Uh, it's an interesting conversation that we had. It's good to catch up with Steve. So why don't we listen to that? And then you and I will be back after the break to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am really delighted to bring back someone that not, has not only been on the show before, but Steve, you and I have a long history of knowing each other since almost the onset of my career in healthcare. That we do. Yeah. So that's Steve Leapforth that you hear on the other side of the, the microphone there. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Good to be back for the third or fourth time, uh, depending on how you look at it, I think. Yeah, depending on how you count it, right? You've been on uh, before, but it's been a couple of years since we've had you on. So I'm glad, excited that you're back. You and I have a long history of being involved in uh, you know, talking about digital and healthcare for many years ago. Yeah, I think you and I met when I was uh, working back on the health system side, uh, back in the early stages of uh, Facebook and uh, Google Analytics. You remember those days still? Oh my gosh, yeah. Back when Facebook actually really mattered. <laughs> it still does. I'm kidding, folks listening in. I'm kidding. But yeah, I do remember that boy. And you were working for a health system out of the Chicago area. But Steve, you've kind of come a little bit in that in those times. Would you mind since some people listening in may not know about your background? You want to share a little bit about your experience in our space? Yeah, absolutely. So um, started uh, on the hospital side, uh, as you mentioned, worked for a couple different health systems in the Chicagoland area that have rebranded uh, a handful of times, so probably not even recognizable anymore, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, grew out of that space. And then uh, I've been on the vendor side for uh, going on about 13, 14 years now. So spent some time at uh, Influence Health and Health Grades in a number of different roles, um, sales and solution consulting. But uh, I'm now the managing director of Castle Connolly, focused on our top hospital business, uh, as well as our everyday health provider directory. So, but I, I think too, Chris, before we jump in too far, I think we got to go back to you know where you and I started. We connected a long time ago in those early days. But uh, you know, if, if your audience is interested in seeing what Chris Boyer uh, looked like twelve years ago and how you know intelligent and focused he was on healthcare digital marketing, there's a great YouTube video that uh, Chris uh, luckily pulled me in uh, to be interviewed in, in the old days, let's call it at this point. And I don't think Chris, you, were, you and I have not aged one bit in 12 years based on watching that video this week, have we? Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, definitely. If you're interested, we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go back and watch that. I think some of the things we talked about may feel a little bit dated, but some, but generally it's a, it was a really good conversation. Yep, definitely still focused on digital strategy and patient acquisition, which is the topic for today a little bit. Yeah, because because, you know, the state of consumerism here and particularly in the post pandemic, well, we're not officially post pandemic, but in where we're at in 2022, we've been talking about consumerism and consumer choice in healthcare for 12 years. That's kind of the beauty of what digital was way back then. But there's been some significant shifts and changes in consumer behavior. If you look at the way the state of consumerism in healthcare nowadays, what's your perspective? What is happening out there? Yeah, and, and if I can, can just take a quick step back because I think it'll set up uh, you know a little bit of my viewpoint. Castle Connolly has been around for 25 plus years. It was founded by Dr. John Connolly and John Castle. And their goal really was to, you know, make that recommendation in that moment of truth when you're looking for a top doctor. So, you know, back in the day, it started as a, a physical book that they delivered and obviously has now evolved into digital. So really what makes Castle Connolly unique, too, is really two areas. So number one, you cannot become a Castle Connolly top doctor unless you're peer nominated. So it has to be a recommendation from another physician. And then we have our own internal research team that looks at doctors and has a number of criteria to determine if they qualify to become a Castle Connolly top doctor. So today we have 61,000 top doctors, which represents about 7% of the doctors in the United States. Castle Connolly was acquired about three and a half years ago by Everyday Health. And I knew of Everyday Health being in the industry, you know, for a while, as you have, but I didn't really understand the breadth of what Everyday Health is on a couple of different sides. So, you know, just to give you a little bit of background, Everyday Health, we're recognized as a leader in patient and provider education. And we have an engaged audience of over 60 million health consumers and almost 900,000, you know, practicing physicians and clinicians. We were able to partner with Everyday Health in December and January in conjunction with our 2022 top doctors announcement. And we did a survey on the state of healthcare, both from a patient and a physician perspective. This study looked at how consumers search for doctors and how doctors think 
consumers search for doctors or search for care is aligned, but sometimes a little bit different. And I think a big part of that is because there's this sort of like inherent challenge with this now newly empowered healthcare consumer, particularly after COVID. Digital is now becoming a big part of this. With that kind of that drive towards digital consumerism is this aspect of choice. In terms of the patient behavior, what did your study find out about patients that are choosing doctors? Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, again, having been in this industry for a long time, you know, you and I know how, and our audience knows how tough patient acquisition is. But we found in the survey that over fifty percent of consumers that were surveyed indicated that they're looking for a new primary care physician and/or specialist in twenty twenty two. And again, you know, that number was eye opening to me because again, you know, we know how tough it is to acquire new patients, the cost of a patient, lifetime value, et cetera. To recognize that there's that much change happening on an annual basis really is kind of two sides of the coin, right? Patient acquisition, but then, you know, also looking at how do I keep my existing patients? Yeah, at 50%. I mean, that's significant. Now we do know that there's a lot of choice going on out there around selecting doctors, but 50%, that's like a double-edged sword. So let's talk about the positive side of this, and then we'll talk a little bit about the downside of that. The positive side of that from a digital marketing perspective, I'm like, what a great opportunity. You have all these people out there making choices, right? There are so many different ways, and I think we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more in terms of the specific things that are important to patients, but it is. There's there's fish to be caught, right? We know there, there's no one strategy that, that is going to drive patient acquisition, right? It depends on your market. It depends on the seasonality. So there's so many different factors. So again, it just opens up the opportunity to know that the patients are out there if, if you execute on that as a, as a digital marketer. But on the flip side of that, the other part that gives me a little bit of a heartburn is that does that mean that 50% of my patients are basically at risk right now of switching? That's the downside of the fact that there's so much choice. Yeah. And the other side of the survey, again, you know, what, what really made this interesting to me is when we surveyed the physicians, almost half of the, the healthcare providers said that they were not satisfied with their current patient population. So, you know, at the same time, you know, they may have patients that are not engaged with them in some way. It may be people that are popping in, popping out. So again, to your point, you know, there, there are strategies that are needed and tools, right? You know, again, one thing is the patient experience, but you know, convenience, choice, access are, are extremely important, even when I'm an existing patient. You know, from my personal experience, I've jumped around to primary care docs at different points over the last three, four or five years. Being someone that, you know, travels fairly often, you know, only has certain times for appointments. If I can't get an appointment very easily, you know, I may move to the, the to, so to another doctor just for a basic kind of primary care checkup. You know, when you die, you know, dive into more of a specialty focus, that changes. So, that, again, there's so many different factors that we have to look at to determine what is that true, you know, patient experience kind of nirvana that, that they're looking for. But wait, let me let me pause a second on that, because you said that if the study also showed that the providers themselves maybe are not 100 percent behind their patient population. Is that, did I hear that the right way? They're like, they're not confident that their patients are the right patients? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix of a couple of factors. Obviously, in some cases, providers want to grow their practice. So that's typically the, the main area of focus. But again, they also want to diversify their patients. Insurance mix, diversity, there's a lot of different factors there. Um, and it kind of depends on what's important to that individual doc. But yeah, 50% replied that they were not satisfied with their current patient population. That to me, speaks to be like either a huge opportunity or a huge risk, again, depending on what side of the bed you wake up up that morning, right? Let's talk a little bit about some of those factors that we were kind of alluding to. From your survey, what are you seeing are some of the things that patients are looking for when they're choosing new doctors? Yeah, there were a couple of factors that really stood out, both good and bad from my perspective. The number one factor was the ability to listen, right? You know, having a doctor who is taking the time to hear you out and understand what your needs are and not feeling rushed. So we all know how important that is, right? When you're having a health issue or scare, almost six out of 10 uh, individuals indicated that that was the case. Next was experience, right? You know, how long have they been around? What is their background? What's their, their clinical expertise? And that was 48% of those that responded. Um, and then the last one is similar in terms of accomplishments. So 45% indicated that if it's a specialty, have they performed the surgery for a number of years? You know, do they have a good handle on technology? You know, all, all other kind of details behind that. So those points there, the ability to listen, clinical experience, all of those things that you just mentioned, Steve, 
those are not new to us, right? We, we've seen that. That's kind of tracking through through like the HCAPs and the NRC. And we kind of know that those are important. So that's good to know that those inherent concepts of that patient-provider relationship are still kind of solid. But there are other factors now that are starting to come in, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, again, a little bit of this is generational, but we're, we're seeing, you know, a different version of this country and, and what's important to people. But especially the, the younger individuals that were surveyed, you know, really put more stock in finding doctors that look like them, that understood, you know, th- their plight. So, you know, things that stood out from the survey were finding doctors who had respect and sensitivity for their race, uh, ethnicity, gender identity, socioeconomic status. Again, you know, we want doctors that have had shared experiences that understand where we're coming from. So again, those factors are not bubbling up to the level of the, the ones that we typically see, but definitely increasing more and more and becoming more and more important. These are things that as we look at, you know, the new find a doctor profile, which I was talking about with our team just the other day, we need to really have these front and center because that whole concept of a patient choosing a provider that either looks like them or respects who they are is important. I think that younger generation you alluded to is going to become the, the dominant generation you know, before you know it. So we might as well get ahead of that one. This is how we think about things, too, because how hard is it to find a doctor in those situations, right? You know, if you're a minority and you're looking for someone uh, who is also a minority of the, the same race and, es- race and ethnicity, right? You know, we don't create physician finders that are, that are easy to find that. You know, it's even hard to track that. There was a, a recent law passed in Colorado that's, you know, looking to track some of that type of information and it got some pushback. So again, it's an interesting, you know, battle in terms of how do we track that in a way to make that easier for consumers? Because as, as always in healthcare, Chris, right, you know this, it's, it's never easy and it always takes a couple extra steps than it should. But, um, you know, that's another piece that I, I I think as an industry, we need to figure out to be better for consumers. One of the other findings is around the strength of accessibility, right? Accessibility is becoming part and parcel in this whole selection of a doctor. It's not only being able to select the right doctor, but being able to to access that doctor, being able to, to get to them, to use the right tools to schedule appointments with them and things like that. What was interesting, though, Chris, is in the survey, only 23% said that that was important to them. Oh, so, wow. Um, yeah, the, I, I think we make some assumptions there. And, and you know, again... I don't know, and maybe you know with more of your you know personal healthcare experience at the time at the moment, but you know, sometimes that's just something that, that can't be solved, right? You know, there's other limiting factors and you just have to work around that. So that was an interesting data point that stood out to me because again, I would have expected that to be up in this 50-60% range, like some of the other items that we talked about. As we think about those factors, those are kind of important to decide. There's other things that the survey kind of surfaced here that surprised me as well. Yeah, I think there were a couple other things that, that stood out, um, kind of getting into more of, you know what are you looking for uh, in terms of a recommendation for a doctor? So 42% of those surveyed said they would prefer a recommendation from another doctor. And again, you know, this is what Castle Connolly is built on and, and why we feel that, you know, you can find a, a true top doctor on our website. But then it gets into some other factors that were interesting as well. So, you know, 29% kind of extended that and said, looking for recommendations from friends, family, coworkers. So again, kind of the Facebook model of, hey, you know, I've got this specific disease or condition or issue, you know, what do you recommend? Who, do, who you know, who should I look at? Almost similar to the access data point standing out, the, well, the other one that was really interesting to me, because I think a lot of us use this, you know, I used it this week when I went to dinner, ratings and reviews is very low. Um, only 20% said that that was a key factor for them. Huh. That is interesting. I, obviously, I'm in the digital health space. So to me, I always look for those surveys that say, hey, this is top of the ranking because that's something I can manage. But in this particular case, it seems like those personal recommendations from either doctors or friends and families, you know, the old fashioned word of mouth is still playing a major role in how they select new care. Yeah, it, it, I think it's that, sh- again, kind of back to the concept of a shared experience, right? Ratings and reviews is additive, I think, right? I always go in and read read the ratings and reviews, but it's kind of after I've narrowed it down based on a personal recommendation or a recommendation from a physician, right? So again, I think we need to think about how we prioritize some of these pieces because they're all important, right? You know, you, you know this, Chris, but it's, you know, what is that kind of that patient journey within a patient journey almost? That finding of like, you know, turning to friends and family, part of what you found is that, you know, that's it's because they actually tell you the real story, right? They're trying to get the real story and give you that practical information, like where do you park and how long do you have to wait and other things like that, which 
that's starting to surface in these online reviews, but I could totally understand about, I just want to hear how other people's experiences are. So, hey, you went to this doctor, tell me what it was like end to end. There's so many factors and you can, you can dig into each of these, right? We could probably do a 20 minute podcast on each of these individual factors. Yeah, we probably, we absolutely sure could. But there's one, another thing that came out that I really want to hit on. Your survey actually got into why patients are looking for a doctor now. Why is there so much like fungibility, right? Or choice right now that's happening. There were a couple factors and one just kind of an interesting stat that stood out. And again, the the beauty of the survey, having both sides of of the equation is we've all been through COVID in the last two plus years. Um, You know, it's affected all of us, you know, mental health, physical health, et cetera. And when we surveyed and asked the patients first, you know, how many felt that they saw deterioration in, in their physical and or mental health? 63% 63% said that it, that it did. Um, so again, a number that wasn't that surprising. But when we talked to the physicians, um, they actually said that 80, they felt that almost 90%, 87% of their patients had deterioration in their physical and mental health. So I, I, again, I think they see the factors around, you know, things like heart disease, diabetes that are, you know, are, have been impacted by us being so, you know, stationary and closed in. They're seeing a very different version of that. And again, I think that's that's spawning some of these conversations around looking for a new doctor because you may not recognize some of the issues. You know, we all know that screenings were down over the last year and a half. What is the impact of that when we weren't doing a lot of those initial, you know, screenings that, that lead to diagnosis? So I, I think there's a lot of health issues out there that may or may not be known for patients right now. So that is really interesting. So patients seem to think that they're a lot better or, or you know, than, than doctors actually think they are. And that's probably because the physicians are like, wait, we know you've been missing your appointments because of COVID and, you know, and, and social distancing and things like that. So now we have a marketplace where there's a great, enough, great amount of choice. 50, over 50% of people are actively searching new primary care doctors. We have all these new factors coming into play. But yet we have a population that says, yeah, but, you know, the patients are like not really motivated per se to seek immediate care while the doctors say they are. So what does that mean? I mean, it's a complicated picture for us now sitting in hospitals and systems. What do we need to do? <laughs> yeah, I think there's a couple things. And again, you know, having the perspective of working at Everyday Health, you know, we in Castle County, we've seen our traffic up. So, you know, on the everyday health side, I think that's about health content to an extent, right? You know, they're looking for online tools, content that helps them through this journey. Tying to the concept that we were talking about earlier, you know, they're looking for similar experiences. So they, they want to read an article that has, you know, someone dealing with something that they've dealt with. I've got a health issue right now. I actually found an article online from a local doctor that literally described exactly the scenario that I'm going through. And I ended up making an appointment with that doctor. So people want to take it in their hands, their, their choices in their hands, but then you also have to have the downstream tools to support it. So like you said, it's complicated, it's an open market, and there's definitely not the, a silver bullet to solve all of it. But again, I think we need to look at it from multiple perspectives as healthcare marketers. And what you're describing there is they're on a journey for care but it's not necessarily a journey to pick a doctor. It's connecting that journey of care. I'm interested about this physical condition I have or whatever to connect it back to actual access to your providers and allowing them to choose a care. That's interesting because that's now what you're, what you're just basically are, are outlining, Steve, is a whole different type of consumer journey when they're seeking a new doctor. I'll just tell you again, my personal health journey right now, you know, I had decided in December to make an appointment. I did searches. I tried to make appointments. I got, you know, all the factors that we're talking about today, I got stuck from an access perspective, couldn't schedule. But when I finally found that article that was a woman that suffered exactly what I'm suffering, I scheduled something literally that day. Wow. Wow. On the flip side of this, if you have a good relationship with your, as a provider with your patient, you need to hold on to that, right? You need to retain that relationship and, and ensure that that relationship is healthy and sound. And I think, Chris, there's a lot of fundamentals that, that are similar from a patient acquisition standpoint, right? You know, again, making sure that your existing patients have, you know, ease of access, making sure that you're sharing content that might be relevant to them, right? There's a lot of different angles to look at this, that there's a crossover between the new patient experience and the existing patient. Um, again, I, I think, you know, as healthcare marketers, 
patient acquisition is extremely important because, you know, we know the revenue that, that drives. But I, I think we also need to invest on the other side of that, of, you know, someone who's been in and had a positive experience or a medium to positive experience and continue to reinforce that and share the right content and, you know, share tools that are available. You don't live with just one doctor your entire life, right? You're, you're, you've got a group of doctors, a care team, all that matters. And again, that, that's our approach at Castle Colony Everyday Health is to be able to provide the right doctor at the right time or the right care team at the right time. Kind of reinforces that old adage that we know that it's easier to retain existing customers as it is to attract new ones. So don't forget about that existing relationship you have with your your patients as a provider and really reinforce that. Treat them as if they are a potential new consumer in the marketplace, right? Because you never know. They may be part of that 50% of consumers that are actively choosing someone else. So we want to keep them, make sure they keep choosing you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, I, I think that's that is eye opening because you can just picture every time you're dealing with two individuals, one of them's got one foot out the door. Steve, interesting conversation. I'm sure, like you said, we could talk about this ad nauseum on all of these topics individually. But today you shared a lot with us. I know there's people listening in that want to learn a little bit more about you and maybe even connect with you online. What are some ways they can do that? No, I think a couple places, and we'll put the links hopefully in the show, or I can send them to you, but uh, castleconnolly.com is our top doctor source. Everydayhealth.com is uh, all of the content pieces that I spoke to. And then for me personally, probably the best way would be uh, LinkedIn, Steve Leapforth, Managing Director at Everyday Health. And then uh, I do spend some time on Twitter, not quite as active there, but uh, S Leapforth. Um, and again, we'll put that in the, the show notes, hopefully. Right absolutely. Now. I, I'm experienced. Do I sound like I've been on the podcast a few times? I'm- yeah, you're, you got your part down for sure. That's absolutely great. Steve, great conversation. We have to make sure it's not that many years before we get you back on again. And who knows, maybe someday we can actually have this conversation in person again. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Appreciate the time, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Special thanks to Steve for coming back on the show. Uh, appreciate his time, insights, expertise, all the kind of fun stuff. Really enjoyed having him on and know that uh, everybody listening uh, would say the same. Mm-hmm. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health, TPS report. We mentioned that. Uh, also part of that email that comes out are some quick links to upcoming industry conferences. So be sure to check those as you're thinking about your schedule for the summer through the fall. Got some of those uh, major conferences listed there. If you think we should add something to the list, let us know if we're missing something. I would love to hear from you. And let's do a couple of recommendations and then we'll call it a week. I'll start. I'm going to recommend a podcast this week called Tiffany Dover is Dead. Mm. It's an NBC News podcast and it is about one of the internet's weirdest obsessions. So back in December of 2020, a nurse in Alabama named Tiffany Dover fainted on camera after she received her first COVID shot. Now she fainted, got right back up, did a, an interview, but it was too late in the short time that she was off camera because she fainted conspiracy theorists across the country picked up on this developing conspiracies around the fact that she's actually dead that she'd been replaced by a body double, an ever-expanding list of conspirators, drug companies, the hospital, the media, maybe even the Pope is implied as covering up her death. Now, here's the thing. Now we're getting somewhere. Now, Tiffany Dover isn't dead. She's alive. But because of what happened, it's suddenly had almost an immediate backlash. Her family started to get contacted by people on the internet. So she immediately shut down, went silent on social media, which is bad because then, of course, that fueled the fire. The hospital didn't react well either. And through their PR, they didn't say anything. And it really, this, this podcast is fascinating because each episode goes into different aspects of conspiracy theories and how the balance is, is kind of skewed towards people that can make up things about other people online. One episode gets into social media. Another episode gets into how hospitals and traditional organizations respond to these types of things and how that's bad, how people personally respond to uh, these things. And even in the person doing the podcast sat sat down with a person that's the most leading conspiratorial that writes about Tiffany Dover all the time and actually asked him point blank, what can we do? How can I help? like shift your mind. And he outright said, I don't think you could give me any kind of information that will help me feel otherwise. Cause I'm a hundred percent confident <laughs> in my assessment. All right. Well, there you go. 
It's fascinating. It's all about hashtag truthers, right? The people that are against vaccines. And I tell you, it's fascinating because it gets into all different aspects of things that you and I have talked about. And I recommend it strongly. NBC News' podcast called Tiffany Dover is dead. Very interesting. It sounds harsh, but she's not dead. But anyway, give it a listen. Well, it's nice to know she's not dead. Alive and well. All right. I'm going to recommend a book uh, called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. Donald Miller, I originally got turned on to uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, He wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz. And uh, anyway, that's a whole kind of autobiographical-ish kind of, anyway, has nothing to do with business. And later in life, he, he somehow found himself writing business books. This one called Building a Story Brand actually has a conference that goes along with it, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's about clarifying your message uh, so the customer will listen. So using the seven elements of great storytelling to grow your business. So really what this is, is it breaks down how a story is told, the elements of a story, the people in the story, uh, like a guide, you know, those types of things. It's really fascinating. Now, what I will tell you about this is that it will ruin all movies for you. Oh, no. <laughs> no, not really, but kind of, right? Because really what it does is it's like, listen, it, it talks about, you know, how movies are made. You know, there's a character. The character has a problem. They meet a guide who gives them a plan gives them a call to action and it ends in success and helps them to avoid failure. There's like a formula for how movies are, are done, you know, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And he talks about it in the context of marketing and business. And it's really fascinating. We actually use this uh, kind of methodology at Gerard uh, to build message platforms and things like that. And it's a really fascinating way to kind of think about your brand. It's a very practical book, has takeaways, charts, graphs, you know, things like that inside. And certainly you can find a lot of stuff online relative to it. But Donald Miller, Building a Story Brand. Interesting. I, I haven't heard of this book. I'm going to go put it on my uh, my queue there. Seems really yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Uh, kind of as you think about, we, we actually used it uh, as we thought about like how to design the homepage of a website. Oh, wow. And so it has some really practical use cases as you think about what you're trying to do, like what story you're trying to tell and that kind of thing. So it all comes together. Absolutely. Well, uh, very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, Another good episode. A good chance to uh, uh, connect, talk about something that, uh, quite honestly, I didn't get a lot of thought to. But I hope everybody enjoyed it. Hope it brightened your week. Maybe a little strong, but anyway, <laughs> we, we hope it was we hope it was worthwhile, and we sure love to hear from you. If there's other topics we should cover, people we should have on the show, etc., please reach out, and let us know. LinkedIn, Twitter, usually the best way to track us down. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.